everybody. Welcome back to Patriots to the Core podcast. I am Thad Forrester coming to you today from my mobile studio here on U.S. Highway 231. I uh, hope you find some value and inspiration from today's guest. Uh, Dan is, has become a good friend of ours. We actually never met until this past summer in July. And he came down and visited my parents and I, and so we've had a really good, we had a great visit with him, and he's just been a huge supporter of the Mark Forster Foundation. But he's actually done a lot of great things uh, in his life. He's a he's an entrepreneur, and I really was touched by, uh, I was impressed really by by uh, the American Profile little magazine he started several years ago that went out to small town America in their newspapers. Now, unfortunately, uh, I'm from a small town, but but my newspaper, I don't remember it ever being in there. I don't think it was in there. Uh, but but the circulation was huge, and so uh, I guess uh, based on the numbers, we were one of the few small towns papers that didn't have this magazine. So I think it's a it's just a I wanted to highlight Dan, and he's just a maybe a little known American patriot that uh, I wanted to share with everybody. Um, I had a great interview with him actually. We, uh, we uh, I could see it behind him. We were doing it via Skype, and he's got all these animals. Uh, he's got a few rooms in his house with all these exotic animals that he's that he's killed and all over the world. And um, you know there was a very awesome lion sitting right behind him that I saw the whole time while we were talking. So he's a he's a very interesting guy. He's he stays physically fit, and so uh, I hope you enjoy the show. I'm going to bring Dan on now. Well, Dan, great having you with me today. I, I appreciate you making the time to to meet with me, and um, I think you've got a some pretty inspiring stories, and 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 have been also just a great uh, a great American. So I wanted to you to share some of your experiences and some businesses you've started. And so, how you doing? I'm doing great, Thad. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm actually I'm I'm pretty excited to do this with you. Good, good. Uh, so the, yeah, the purpose of the podcast is um, you know, most of my guests are military, but not all, and I never meant for all of them to be because really it's about people who serve and people who are patriots. You know, they love the country and they're humanitarians, and and so you're someone who definitely fits that description. Uh, I wanted to to start out with you recently competed in the the World Duathlon Championship in Spain. So let's just start there. I mean, can you just tell us what the crap was a duathlon and 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 how did you prepare for that and oh. all the good stuff about it? Oh yeah, you bet. You know, before anybody thinks that I'm some uh, super athlete, you know, I'm I'm 56 years old and I've competed in sports, you know, all my life from little league all the way up through high school and college. Um, and I played all the sports, uh, but I don't know that I was ever stellar in in any one. In college, I was fortunate enough to be um, on a rugby team that went to the national championships. But then, um, you know, later in life, uh, got married and the kids came and um, still stayed active, played pickup basketball, this and that. And um, I got into, in my later 30s, into adventure racing. Do you know what adventure racing is? I don't. Adventure racing is where yeah, the sport are sometimes 40 to 70 miles and the expedition races are like 500 miles and you pack a pack military guys love it we, we compete against military teams all the time you go into a state forest nothing is marked you carry a compass a topographical map all your hydration and food and whatever gear you need and you basically trail run mountain bike climb rappel kayak and you have to navigate the whole way to get to the finish line. No crowds. No, I mean, it's just a pure um, endurance race in a team format, three per team. And um, I really, really dug it. Um, I dug the endurance angle of it. I really loved the camaraderie, three people working together in a team. Um, you're making mistakes. And after, you know, eight or nine hours, your mind starts to go uh, and you making mistakes and you've got to pick up and help your teammate through it. Bad team chemistry, the teams fall apart. Good team chemistries, they go ahead. And anyway, I, I did that for a number of years and then started doing triathlons. And um, But I always just did them, 
uh, you know, competitively with myself and never trying to make the podium. Well, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine said, you know, I think you could make the national team in the duathlon. And I had no idea what in the world a duathlon was. Well, basically, it's the sister race of the triathlon. Instead of swim, bike, run, you run, bike, run. And some folks are saying that it's actually harder than a try because it's all legs. You run, you bike, you run. Well, anyway, um, I went to St. Paul for the national championships, and believe it or not, I made I made the team in the long course. And then I went down um, to Florida for the for the nationals in the sprint. I placed sixth in the nation in my age group. Couldn't believe it. And I qualified to go to Spain for the nationals, and that's how I got there. So. Are you? Can we call you an Olympian? Ha, I'm on Team USA. If I had been in the triathlon, the tri guys get to go to the Olympics, but the only people out of Team USA that make the Olympics are the select few, and you know they're usually a, a lot younger. So I'm on the same team as the Olympians, Team USA, but I'm an age group guy. And um, so the select few that are like representing us right now in the um, triathlon, there's uh, four or five of them. And um, if you look at all the age group athletes on the national teams, about 200. Okay. I could carry their water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go back to this adventure racing yeah. quickly. How did you find other guys to be on the team with you? And then what kind of places – I know you said parks and th- stuff like that, but where did you do these uh, races at specifically? Yeah, they they were they're all over the country, um, and usually in state forests uh, where there are trails, but nothing is marked, so you have to use a topographical map. I actually got turned on to it. I was I was um, I was doing some kickboxing. Um, and I'm you know that you know I'm an active guy. I have way too many hobbies, but. Um, and there was um, one of the assistant trainers in there was talking about doing um, adventure racing, and she had just done Primal Quest. You might remember that was on TV a number of years ago. Um, it was like one of the very first reality shows um, done, and, and she competed in it. She's from Ireland, and she gave me a video of that race. And so imagine in your mind's eye, team of three that have to navigate, you know, let's say 70 miles to 500 miles in an expedition, no assistance. You, you know, you're biking, you're carrying your bikes, you're climbing and rappelling you, in your kit. You've got uh, your hand repellers. Um, you come to a certain station that you have to navigate to, and there's a kayak waiting for you. You got to go, and then you got a portage, you got a trail run. Um, you might have to climb, go through mud, you, you, you bushwhack. Your navigation is screwed up and you realize you're 10 miles off the course. It's, and you're physically absolutely exhausted because you, you have, you're basically going. You have to hydrate and eat every hour. Um, and when it's all over, it, there's nobody there. There's no crowds there. Uh, you might, you might be lucky. There might be a cold cheeseburger on a grill somewhere. Um, but it's just the satisfaction of, um, just, you know, that account, that physical and mental and um, uh, team effort to get through it. It, it. I couldn't do them today. I'm, I'm too old now. They're, they're such a physical challenge. But um, it's as much mental as it is physical. And um, like I said earlier, a lot of guys, we would compete many times against um, athletes that were former military or still in the military. And, you know, I, I think a lot of that probably resembles some of the training that they went through. And it was a blast to compete against those guys because at the end of the day, the best athletes did not win. It was the best navigators and the teams with the best um, chemistry between them. Yeah, that's very interesting. So this was a, a weekend deal for you then, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would do I would do two or three of them a year. For, for, I don't know, three or four years, and then moved into the triathlons and then the duathlons. And, um, you know, at the end of my duathlon, uh, at the end of my triathlon uh, career, I guess I'd say two, three years ago, 
was when I actually came across the story of Mark Forster and ran my last series of triathlons in his honor, which I don't, you know, you and your folks didn't know until I finished them that I had done that. Yeah, well, let's talk about your uh, training. Like, how, how did you how did you prepare for these world championships in Spain and to even qualify to get there? What specifically did you do? And I know you said you're 56. You're obviously in, in pretty dang good shape. I've met you, and you stay fit. You just, I mean, you just walked in <laughs> sweating like crazy from, from taking a run tonight. So right. I'd like to know what you do um, to stay fit. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm I'm probably the worst role example because um, role model. I I've never really um, done training regimes. I used to just use each race for the next race. When believe it or not. When I was in my prime, I would go out and swim two or three times, bike two or three times, run two or three times, and then I'd just go do the triathlons. Um, but when I realized that uh, by hook or crook I had just made the nationals and now had a chance to race for the country, I realized this was a totally different deal. And um, you know, it, it hadn't—it really never hit me that I was on the U.S. national team. Um, Slowly, it started to creep into my mind, but I kept trying to downplay it. You know, I just didn't see myself uh, really at that level necessarily. But the competitiveness in me said, you know, there's no way I wanted to go and not perform. And so um, I started um, basically really watching what I was eating. You know, most of the training actually is done in the kitchen. You um, you really have to watch what your caloric in- is when you eat, um, and then, um, you know, of those calories, what's it made of? You know, you don't want to be eating gummy bears all the time. you got to cut down on the carbs, um, a lot of protein. Um, and um, then I was training, um, you know, once or twice a day, every day, nothing on the weekend. So swimming, biking, running, uh, weightlifting, and then I'd mix it up a little bit with the, a little kickboxing for, you know, just kind of a – cross-training kind of deal. So what injuries or challenges did you face before ever getting to Spain, just preparing for it? Well, leading up to Spain, you know, with all the different sports and rugby and everything, I've had 10 different orthopedic surgeries uh, up until the age of, um, I guess, about 54. And then um, when I uh, started training to for the nationals the first national race the year before spain um two months prior to the race i suffered a series of um, what they called micro fractures to the pelvis and it was purely from overtraining and i literally could not walk i could not move my legs um it started out feeling like uh, i had a torn groin then it went to the hamstring the back and then the next day i was in sweats and i literally I couldn't move my legs, and um, they were able to diagnose it. And they said it's rare. They said it could take a couple months, could take a year, take a couple years. And I had to start. So I had two months to get back to shape, and I was going to physical therapy every other day. Um, and they they started training me like a baby, training me how to crawl to get the muscles working again. Um, and then literally when I went up to St. Paul for the nationals, I had not run outside and I had only biked on a spinning bike and I set a personal record in the race. And it's a cool story about that, Thad. When I got on the plane to go up there, I was traveling with a friend of mine who's a fellow athlete and I was visibly trembling on the plane. I was just overridden with anxiety because I thought there was, there's just absolutely no way I should be trying to do this. Um, and as just before the plane started the taxi, he handed me his phone. His wife had just texted him a, a piece of scripture. And the scripture, I'll paraphrase it. I wish I had it in front of me, but basically said, you know, in times of trouble, that's when you're supposed to reach up and take my hand and hold it tightly because, you know, without me, you would never get over the first hurdle. And what do the hurdles really matter anyway? These times are for you to get close to me. And when I read that, the two things went through my mind. The first was, wow, that you know, that's actually very Eric Little-like. 
the fastest man in the world back in out of Scotland in the 1920 Olympics that was featured in Chariots of Fire, who refused to run on Sunday because it was the hmm. Sabbath. And um, I, um, I felt calm. And I thought to myself, and I said, okay, Lord, that, that just really makes a lot of sense. I, I just need to let this anxiety go and use this situation to take your hand to follow you and your will. We landed and we got to the hotel and my wife, um, or no, I'm sorry, a friend of mine sent me via Facebook the same scripture. She had taken a picture out of a different book. <laughs> and and I I showed my friend we were rooming together and he said wow he said now that's that's a little close to home I called my wife and I sent her that scripture and she said on the phone she goes you know that's very Eric Little like and, <laughs> and at that point I, I chuckled and I and you know here the true story is that at that moment I said you know what I do not care how I'm going to do I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna have fun I don't care and we lined up. And I didn't have a care in the world. I got back in the back of the pack and the gun went off and I went and I came across the finish line and I had never felt better. I drank about a quarter of a bottle of water. My buddy came up to me and he said, hey, are you going to go check your time to see if you made the team? I said, nah, I'm not worried about it. He said, you got to be kidding me. Come on, let's go check your time. I said, really? No. I said, you know what? There's probably no chance and it doesn't matter. I completed the race. That great deal he finds me about five minutes later and he said dude you're not going to believe it you're on the team <laughs> so it was a it's a pretty cool lesson yeah you just that's great you're able to to finally uh just not care and to just enjoy it and all your uh, your anxiety went away <laughs> exactly it was amazing and um you know times like those just takes you just you know and you know, we're all works in progress, right? So it just it's just another inch closer to, to getting it right. Yeah. Well, I'm curious now how that carried over to when you were in Spain, because I would like you to share you you had an injury. I think you got injured during the race or while you were there. Maybe talk about that, because yeah. I'm, I'm really curious how you overcame that and finished the, the race. Well, I, I milked that injury that I had just prior to the Nationals in St. Paul and then <clears throat> went down to Florida for the Sprint um, Nationals, where I've, I felt like I had rehabbed completely Thad, and I thought I was at about 95%, and I really competed well and placed sixth and thought, okay, I've, I've got this licked. And with the world championships in um, June, I kept training. And almost a year to the day that that injury happened, about two months before the world championship, boom, it happened again. And um, I could walk, I could still walk, but it just felt like I had blown up my hamstring, the back of my knee, uh, hernia, back. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So I started all over again with all the rehab and the PT and everything and went to the Worlds, um, basically not having run outside, not having biked. Um, same story again with that scripture clutched in my hand. Um, but there was one thing different about this this race, other than, um, of course, it was the world's, which is a whole story in of itself. I mean, it, it, I finally got a taste of what very few of us ever get the taste, and that is of the Olympics. And I, it, my wife had shot a video, and it showed um, my face as the camera went by, and I saw it in my own face. Um, you watch the Olympians on TV, and you see them shed a tear when they're standing on the on the podium. And I felt some of that. It's, it's phenomenal. Well, getting up there, um, the, the, the big difference other than the fact that this was a world event was, you know, I dedicated running this to Mark Forster, the Mark Forster foundation. And, um, it meant a lot to me. And so having this injury looming over me, um, 
I wasn't sure how I was really going to do. And, um, my friend, the same fellow who was with me at the long course in the nationals was with me in Spain and we prayed just before the race. He prayed over both of us and, and he asked the Lord to give us both an epic race. And that's exactly what the Lord did. My friend set his own personal record and me right at the first mile mark. I was running a sub 640 uh, clip going into the first 5K. Um, that injury just hit me like a ton of bricks and I almost had to pull up. I could barely move. And um, instantly my mind went um, to your brother. Mark Forrester. And, and I thought, so this is the epic race I've got. You know, how appropriate is it that I have, I now my mission is to finish this thing, not quit, to, to fight through the pain. And so literally that guy, my friend, I beat him in Florida by two minutes. He beat me by over 20 in this race. That's, that's how hammered I was. I was, I was really, I was, I was running 13 minute miles and just shuffling. Sounds like me. (laughs) (laughs) So this is in the first running segment. So you hadn't even gotten on the bike ride yet. Yeah, right. Uh, So I had to run the second two miles of the three miles, um, just basically kind of limp running. And then when I got on the bike, which is my strength, um, I usually average no less than 22 miles an hour on the bike. Um, and this is a draft legal race. So it's kind of like Ricky Bobby. You can get on one another's six, you know, and draft off hmm. of them, but you can't draft off of, um, the opposite sex. Well, the women and the men are start, uh, started at staggered time. So, you know, we would often say to ourselves, well, I want to see the guy who's going to be drafting off the ladies who start five minutes behind him. Not that the ladies aren't amazing, because they are amazing, but for the ladies to overpass you after starting five minutes behind you, you know, something's obviously wrong. Well, I'm the guy who could have drafted off the ladies, because that's how hammered I was. I got through the bike um, and then got to the last run. The transitions that should have taken me 30 seconds took me about a minute and a half, Um, and the last run was, I didn't walk. Um, but I wasn't running. It was kind of just like a shuffle up until the last, the, uh, the last, uh, about 150 yards that, um, I saw the vice president of USA, team USA. And, you know, he was, he yelled out to me and said, you know, are you okay? And I, I hadn't had anything to drink. I wasn't winded. I was just in immense pain. And I said, you know, I could run this again if my legs would cooperate. And at that point, um, a Canadian went around me and, um, I thought, okay, the race has been for Mark. This guy is for me. I got to go get this guy. (laughs) And, um, I, I tried, we were going across the bridge, getting ready to come into the uh, home stretch and the finish line where all the people were. And I could not get him. But as soon as I crossed that bridge and there were thousands of people cheering, the adrenaline just went through me. And I don't know, but somehow I duck waddled, hopped and jumped and got past this guy and took him with about five yards left in front of the finish line. And um, there you have it. You passed him. Huh? I did. That's awesome. So so just, what's the feeling like? What's going through your head and your emotions mm-hmm. as you're... You're finishing this difficult challenge, and then you've got all these people cheering for you. The um, and not, not to mention, you, you know, Mark as an inspiration as well. Well, yeah, you know, I'll be honest with you. For, uh, for the race and the cheering and everything, um, it, it was different probably for me, maybe than others, because I was injured. I was not doing my best. It, it felt to me like it was Mark and me, and it was all about just gritting and finishing it out. For me, then, it was during the opening ceremonies with the Parade of Nations, where so there were 1,400 athletes there uh, representing 30 countries, 
And just like in the Olympics, everyone is wearing their their uh, national uniforms, um, and there's a flag bearer, and there are marching bands and the whole nine yards. But unlike the Olympics, Dad, where you come in and you go around a stadium, this was through the streets of Avil, Spain. So picture narrow, cobble, slate-lined streets, four-story tall, 14th century architecture, and thousands of people are on the sidewalks and literally touching us as we're walking, and they're out the windows and on the rooftops and throwing confetti and noise and clapping and looking at you eye to eye. And it, it was it was overwhelming. Um, I, I then knew what it felt like to be an Olympian. And when we got into the large opening area, large courtyard where they had the opening ceremonies and the stage, and the town poured out. They had a children's choir and orchestra and dancers and music, and they did the athletes' pledges and everything. And each team was introduced and lined up. So you can imagine 30 different countries, 1,400 athletes, and they're doing the athletes' pledge. You know, it, I just even I, I I don't even know how to explain it other than now watching the Olympics in Rio. You know how. On the podium, have you ever noticed <clears throat> more times than not when an American is standing up there getting the gold and they're playing the national anthem, you see you see a tear. Mm -hmm. I, oh, yeah. I don't always notice that with the other nations, and I'm not suggesting that they're not as patriotic about their country, but I think there's something special about our country and patriotism, and I felt it in Spain at the Worlds, and I watched Phelps take his fifth gold medal and the tears were there just like the first. And, you know, that says something. Oh, I, I've thought that a lot, too, the last few Olympics. And uh, especially, I love watching our swimmers, Michael Phelps and his team. And uh, I feel emotion just watching them when they win or watching them, you know, come from behind. It's, it's, it's awesome. So to be in that situation that you've been in, or like our other uh, Olympians we're watching now is uh, is something that I, I don't think I'll, I'll never get to experience probably. But man, I put myself in, my, in that situation; and it, it would be incredible. Oh yeah, you know, and I, I don't know if you saw the clip, but you know, kudos out to Usain Bolt because I saw where he was giving an interview after I don't know the hundred meter dash, maybe it was, or it might have been the two hundred um, uh, trial. And as he was giving the interview, uh, there was apparently they were awarding medals and the national, the U.S. national anthem was being played. So there was an American on top of the podium and he stopped the interview. He said, oh, 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 stop. And he turned and faced the flag in the podium and stood there the entire time until they quit playing the national anthem. Then he turned back around and completed the interview. That was so impressive because I don't know that he was doing it necessarily because it was the American anthem, but as an athlete, he was as respectful of other people's country as his own, and, and that, that really impressed me. Yeah, I didn't see that. That's good to know, though. Uh, anything else? Uh, what's, you know, what's your next event? Um, well, I, the, the doc, the doc is saying, you know, Dan, you're getting a little long in the tooth to keep doing these guys, and um, with the with what I had with the the injury in Spain um, and um, some other problems, uh, he and I have been talking about. I'd like to try to do one more. So that I, what I'm I'm trying to do right now, and that's why I was out running before um, we got together here on this interview, um, is I'd like to try to make the national team in the triathlon, and next year the um, the world uh, triathlon is in Rotterdam. And so, you know, here's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping to make the national. I'm hoping to get to go. I'm hoping to run for the Forrester Foundation. And if I miss on any of those, then I will end my career running for the Forrester Foundation in the Spain duathlon worlds. And I'll be happy. There's plenty of other things to do. I won't look back and we'll move on. Excellent. Well, we've got your beautiful jersey framed in our uh, in Mark's room, the one you presented us. 
uh, with Team USA. It's got the the Mark Forster Foundation logo on there, along with Jag Two Eight. So it looks it looks excellent. Oh, that's great. Um, so something else that really interested me about you, and by the way, Dan, uh, I've got another, I've got an event I'm going to send you some information on. Cool. Because, uh, I think you might find it interesting. Um, but I guess changing topics is, I I was really interested too, and when you told me about this American Profile magazine that you started. Right. Uh, years ago. Right. Will you, uh, tell us what that is about? Yeah, I, I, in, um. In 1999, I launched a company called Publishing Group of America, and the idea was to um, deliver, to produce and deliver magazines primarily to rural America, and to do it through the community newspaper. There are um, 250 urban daily newspapers in our country, but there are 8,000 small daily and weekly newspapers in this country because there are approximately 8,000 small towns or what I like to say is hometowns and um, the journey had actually started eight years before that Um, and it was actually quite a spiritual uh, walk but at the end of that when um, this dream came to fruition to launch it the first publication was called American Profile but it was uh, different than what most people would think. We we were distributing it through a community newspaper. Now, for those who might listen to your podcast that are from a small town, they know exactly what I'm talking about. But from those who might be from suburbia or urban America, they might not know the significance of a community newspaper in a smaller town. Um, those newspapers... Uh, Basically, are the only place to find out who died, who got married, who's the homecoming queen, um, what the score of the uh, basketball game was on Friday night. And um, they have a penetration and readership like no other media business anywhere in the country. And, and even today now, with newspapers not being as strong a medium, community newspapers are still very, very strong, about 80% penetration in their market. So the, the idea was to produce this magazine and deliver it through those papers. And the reason why I chose American Profile was I'm from a small town. And, um, you know, maybe I'm a bit biased, but I, I can think of no other place in this country that's more patriotic. And um, the mission was only to be about the good news of life in hometown America. Community newspapers generally don't take alcohol ads and they generally don't take tobacco ads. And when they write about um, everything from a traffic violation to a murder, they are very, very careful about how they handle the names and whatnot because they face the families they write about in the grocery store. So there's a level of journalistic sensitivity that you don't find um elsewhere in the country, if you will. So when we produced American Profile, it had to emulate that audience, and it had to be something that they wanted to read. So American Profile, every town, every person has a great story. And that's what it was about. It was about finding great stories in American towns, great stories about people, great stories about the happenings in regional areas, um, and uh, one of the examples that I give often that, that was one of my favorites is, you know, we would have a reoccurring feature, which was, you know, a hometown hero. And as I've often told people, not what you think. It was not about the guy who rushed into a burning building and saved the child. The hometown hero was the guy that maybe has been your neighbor for 25 years and unbeknownst to you had been hand whittling toys for an orphanage. That was a hometown hero. And, um, it was, it turned out to be the largest publishing launch in us history, all based off of small towns. It was a phenomenal phenomena of itself. And, um, I, I, even in my offices with the people who, um, worked on it that there was it was just magic around it and um a, a lot of those folks didn't always know why i knew why i 
you know, I, during that eight year journey to produce that business, um, I reached a point where I couldn't move it for, forward and I had to lay it down. And then there were a lot of things that happened in my life that changed my perspective on things. And, and the biggest part of that was to come closer to the Lord. And in doing that, at the eighth year, he came to me and basically said it was time for me to pick that business back up and launch it because I was now the right person to lead that business. And earlier in my life, I wasn't. It wasn't that I was a bad guy. It was that um, I just I didn't have as good of a relationship, wasn't as faithful or as spiritual as I was after he put me through some hoops and uh, jumps, if you will. So how did you find these people and these stories? You know, that's a great question because a lot of people thought, wow, that's a Herculean thing. Uh, even the even the distribution system, I mean, literally 8,000 community newspapers and they all deliver on different days of the week. You know, how do you distribute that kind of thing? Well, you know, it, it was all part of the magic. Some of it, proof that, um, uh, you know, I think the Lord did have his hand in it because um, when we started it, I didn't have the answer to your question, Thad. But guess what? As soon as we started with my editors, a group of editors who would reach out through the community newspapers, those community newspapers would be lining up, throwing editorial at us, feature our town, feature this guy, feature this person, look at this event. And our, it, it, it was basically we, our editors became true editors. They were just receiving content and would have to pick and choose and edit it. And the same thing happened to us on a production standpoint. Um, turns out um, the size of this publication, there are only three printers in North America large enough uh, that are, uh, to produce this type of volume. And the, the number one best plant was built for the ground up for this type of publication 30 miles from where we are. I had no idea. And when they looked at our business plans, they offered us a million dollars worth of financing to get the printing job. You know, that just doesn't happen. No. Well, meant to be. Right. So what, what stories stand out to you besides you you mentioned the man who was whittling the toys what else is something that stands out to you well i my favorite um of all time is very very patriotic i think you'll enjoy it um and meaningful because um um if i remember correctly uh your brother witnessed uh the planes flying into the towers and that's where he made a mental decision. Is it not that upon graduation, he would go into the military? Mm -hmm, correct. All right. So I was sitting in my office on that same day that, and, um, one of my staff rushed in and said, a plane had just flown into one of the towers and, and we didn't know, we, we couldn't make sense of that. And we, we all walked out in one of the common areas where many of my editors and, and, and artists were. Uh, there was a TV set up and they were replaying the first plane flying in. And as soon as I saw that, the first thing that went through my mind was that was not an error. Um, this, this is some sort of an attack. I, I didn't know what, but that's the first thing that went through my mind. And then as you know, we all know the second one went in at that moment. Um, I jumped on the phone. I was supposed to be on a plane the next morning, um, but I had an office in New York with uh, like eight employees and I could not get through. So I was in a panic at that point trying to see if I could find, you know, are my employees okay? Um, there they were in the Lincoln Building, which is near Grand Central Station and the uh, library, um, not uh, at Ground Zero. But you never know where they were at any time because they were all sales folks. Anyway, of course, all the flights were canceled. My flight didn't leave. And we, we know what took place then in the days following that. So I guess it was about a week and a half after that, 
when I got word that they were going to lift uh, the restrictions and allow flights into New York. And so I was on the very first flight that got into New York. Obviously, I had found that all my employees were safe and other people, and, and I had heard, literally, I had actually talked to someone that within an hour, speaking of patriotism and how it is not just isolated to small towns, people were lined around six city blocks in New York ready to give blood. I grabbed my um, editor-in-chief, and I said, you're coming with me to New York. We're getting up there. We're going to see what this is all about. And we're going to check on our staff. And we landed in LaGuardia. Well, I should back up. As our flight was circling, there were only four people on the flight. This this is the first flight getting in. And our pilot was very deft. He said, uh, if you look out the left side of the window, you can see the Statue of Liberty. Well, that was his code for you can see the devastation. And sure enough, we circled and could see ground zero, and the, and the smoke plume was still there. Um, and we landed in LaGuardia, all four of us deplaned, and there was, if you've ever been to LaGuardia, you'll know what this means. It was a ghost town. There was no one there. We walked down an empty hall, went down to baggage. Our two bags were the only bags on the carousel in LaGuardia, and then we stepped out, and there was one car waiting, and it was our car. And um, we got in the car, and we went downtown, and I noticed two things immediately. The first was not a cab honked their horn. And we were there for a week, and I never heard a cab honk their horn. They they quit. They quit honking horns. It, it just wasn't – there, was there was something in the air. And the second thing was there were American flags – everywhere. And uh, my editor and I decided that we did not want to go down to ground zero. We didn't want to be tourists. We need to let the work crews do their thing. While we are journalists, we were not timely news. So we decided not to go down. We saw everything and took everything in that we needed. And on the flight back, we discussed what we were going to do. And he wrote a story he wanted me to participate in it, and I said, no. I said, this is your mission. You need to write this. And and he did. And he wrote a brilliant story that ended up getting picked up around the world, translated in about 30 or 40 different languages. Um, and as part of that story, we put a an American flag, a paper American flag, uh, probably two feet by four feet, that was folded inside of our magazine and went out. Um, with our circulation, which at the time was, I think, about 11 million. And the story was um, entitled um, America's Flag. And what he wrote about was the fact that this was not the first disaster our nation has ever seen. Our nation has faced war. It has faced famine and disease. Many people forget that uh, Washington, D.C. was burned to the ground once. Um, we've had rioting. We've had civil disrest. We've had civil war. But in every one of those issues, in every one of those circumstances, on the back end, as part of the healing for our country, one thing has always united us, and that's the flag. It has come out. It has flown proudly, and everyone has lined up behind it. And his story was beautiful. It was right. It was correct. And we sent 11 million flags out in our publications. And then that we got thousands and thousands of letters from readers. And I'll get choked up here. I'm already getting choked up again just thinking about it. Telling us about the thousands of flags that they were seeing in small town America that we, uh, through our publication, basically saying, you know, we will not forget, we will remember. So, <clears throat> sorry, but, you know, I, in media, those things just, they just don't happen that often. And so much good can come out of something so uh, tragic. You know, that's that's what can really make you proud to be an American. And I will tell you, 
that the New Yorkers showed every bit, if not more, pride and patriotism than I've seen anywhere when they were. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely remember the, the feeling in the country, the feeling of patriotism, and and uh, that's, that was a brilliant call to put the flag in there in every magazine. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think that uh, Peter Fossil was my editor-in-chief, uh, or I. I don't think either one of us could take credit for it. It just came together. You know, we were almost arm wrestling on the flight coming back. He really wanted me to write it or at least to participate in it. And I just had this overwhelming sense that, nope, I was supposed to give him 100% free reign. And, and I did. And he came back with that story and it was brilliant. And I think in reading that story, it occurred to us immediately, let's just put, you know, another four pages worth into this publication and make it an American flag. And, uh, it, I still have that cover of that, that publication I uh, framed. I keep it in my office. Um, yeah. So that, that's probably the best story. Yeah. Anything else with a magazine or the people that were covered that you'd like to share? Uh, no, I think I probably leave it with that one because you know that's that's the topper for me. That's a good one. That's that's really is a good a good way to to, to leave it. I know you don't you're not I don't think you're affiliated with a magazine now, um, but it's still it's still going. Yeah, in some form or another. Right. That's right. Yeah. No, we. Um, uh, we sold it to a larger media group um, in 2007, and then um, I actually went out and, and created another company where we um, owned and operated small-town newspapers, believe it or not. And um, that entity is is still running. And boy, I love I love that job. I just I just love going into small towns. Um, they just they they jazz me. I, I was interviewed once, um, you know about. You know, kind of heady, you know, about the success and whatnot. And, you know, I think those that uh, maybe have a modicum of success don't ever really feel like they have, you know, just because, um, you know, maybe it's uh, uh, you don't want to say words over it or something. But um, somebody said to me in an interview, you know, well, how is it that... um, how is it that you can, uh, you know, stay to this mission, you know, that, that you have with, you know, kind of a really clean business ethic with what you produce? And I said, well, that's easy. I'm from Noblesville, Indiana. And, you know, there's, Noblesville has grown now. Noblesville, you know, we were, we didn't have a McDonald's when I was growing up there, but, uh, there are thousands and thousands of eyeballs of people in Noblesville looking over my shoulder every day, so I better not screw it up. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm from a small town that you, you've been to, and yep. we have a, ta- a newspaper. We've had one my entire life. It um, it comes out two times a week, and I love reading it, and I always have ever since I've you know at least you know been a teenager. And when I go home to this day, I love to go in my dad's office and sit down and look at the newspaper. You know, um, you know they call you know they call community newspapers refrigerator journalism. You know why? No. The urban newspaper guys they don't get it. They think that's actually a derogatory statement. But for everybody else, we know that that's a badge of honor because what refrigerator journalism means is picture of your kid playing soccer and other things that are so important enough that you actually get out the scissors and you cut it out of the newspaper and you put it on the refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, when was the last time you heard somebody cutting something out of the New York times and putting it on a refrigerator? Doesn't happen. Yeah. Good point. Well, yeah, we've definitely done that. And we actually have a friend that, uh, this is this was probably six years ago or seven years ago. My wife had a recipe um, published in the newspaper, yep. and our friend cut it out and you know, mailed it to us. How about that? Yeah, it was, it was very nice. Um, one, one other thing is I know you and your wife – well, your wife is definitely involved in local government or in, in volunteering, and she 
you know, she has said she's not necessarily, she doesn't really care about politics, but she loves government and she's ran for an office. Uh, what, what would you say someone like me or like you or anyone else listening? How can we get involved in our communities? Yeah. No, that's, that's a, it's a good question. And, you know, my wife, um, she's, she's the, the role model. I, you know, the first thing I would say, and if she were sitting here with me, she would echo is, um, it's, it's actually easy to get involved. You just, you just do it. You, you pick up the phone, you go out the door, whatever area that moves you. So for example, um, when we had, uh, when our children were younger, uh, my wife said, you know, I, I really want to be involved in the schools. I want to be involved a lot in the schools such that, um, they started to build a new elementary school where our kids would be. And she went up and said, I want to volunteer. And you know what? In short order, she was, uh, one of the two ladies put in charge of launching the school that, and they became basically the PR face to the community and scheduled everything between the teachers and the community and the opening ceremonies of the school. And she was fully involved, which meant then she knew all the teachers. She knew the principal and she then actually had influence. Um, and which is a good thing because, um, you know, whether it's school or local uh, government and politics or anything, we have we we have to be involved and to bring our influence so that it reflects our values and what we want. So Sherry went from there and said, "Gosh, I'm going to run." the PTO organization here. And so she, of course, had already been a member of the PTO and she became the president of the PTO because she was involved and she just did. And everybody saw her and said, boy, if she runs for PTO president, she let's have her as PTO president because she got involved and she did it. And, you know, then she said, well, there are numerous PTOs in this area. There's no one coordinating all those PTOs so that all those PTOs are getting all those parents involved the same way we've done it in our school. I'm going to set up a council to run all those PTOs. So she went through the school system and the school board and proposed what she wanted to do, and no one had an issue with it whatsoever. They applauded it, and she set up the PTO council, and literally every PTO president then basically reported into Sherry and they coordinated all their activities from one school to the next. Pretty amazing. And once again, not only now did she not know the principal and all the folks in the elementary school and the high school, but now multiple high schools, multiple elementary schools. And then the school board wanted her to take a seat on their board. And so, sure enough, Sherry ran, and, and now she's serving, she was serving on the school board. So you can imagine how much she knows and how, what, what opportunities she had to influence things, not, not with any agenda other than to help to ensure that, uh, the schools and the policies and everything were a reflection of the community values. Um, and the community, of course, brings those values with their voices in different settings. And, and Sherry wanted to ensure that she would represent those voices and those values and reflections. And then uh, she said, you know what? I want to take this to the state house for Tennessee. And so she she ran against an incumbent um, and she lost. Um but I think she has inspired two or three others uh, because, you know, uh, as it turns out, we, we have, a, you know, a couple politicians that maybe have gone past their um, value and are not doing, not reflecting the values of the people whom they represent. And when that happens, it's, you know, it's incumbent upon us, all of us, uh, to participate. We have to vote. We have to express our opinion. 
This country is great for one reason. You know, a group of people wanted to move from tyranny and they were brilliant in building this country and putting together founding documents that would have withstood the test of time for over 200 years and no democracy has ever lasted this long in our world. Shame on us if we don't all get involved locally all the way up to nationally to, you know, the, the greatest generation has left it to us. They did their job. It's up to us to do our job so our kids and grandkids can have it too. And so that's a long-winded answer just to say nothing prevents any of us from getting involved. You, If you see something, don't be shy. Go get involved and and represent your fellow you know, citizens in whatever area you want to go to. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's pretty easy for us all to get involved in some way or another. And and we've got to have people that have, you know, integrity and uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, have a backbone to, to run and help, help to, to lead us and represent us. At least that's what I want. Oh yeah. And, and, and yeah, there are times where it takes courage. Um, but you know, if your motivations are right, then, you know, courage is, courage is, 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 there's no fear. Courage is easy. Um, if your motivations aren't good, then, then that's something that nobody wants. But, um, it's, it, it's just, you know, you sound like me, you know, uh, at times almost just a, a pure sucker for patriotism. I just really believe in it. And, um, um, I just encourage, and it's not corny, daggone it. It's it's not. It's um, you know you look around the world and um, there's a reason why uh, America. It, what was the thing I heard the other day? You know um, about this country and that country being superior to America in different ways and different. And then I say, well, then why, when the chips are down, does everybody want to immigrate here? Mm-hmm. It's it's obvious. And when people in other countries. Uh, people of prominence that have um, serious illnesses, where do they come for their treatment? They come here. So, um, you know, what we've got is very special and it's precarious and um, we shouldn't let it slip through our fingers. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe the, here uh, wrapping it up, I would like you to talk about uh, how, my brother Mark has impacted you because you you never knew him and you didn't know any of us. And so when did you find out? How did you find out about Mark and, and what impact did he have on you? Uh, one day, uh, a a friend of mine um, that that I actually met through one of our one of my businesses um, and and only had a, just a a very, very, very distant relationship with. Um, she was a um, friend of your family, friend of yours, I know, and, and knew Mark um, from, I guess, grade school, high school, something to that effect. College. College, okay. And um, she reached out to me one day, and she said, um, I just think you need to see this story. I think it's a story that would mean something to you. And it was the story of your brother. And, and out of respect, of course, I said, great, yes, of course I will. And uh, I started to look into the story of Mark Forster, and it went, it just went through me like a bowl of lightning. Um, you know, I, I guess I saw two things as I was reading about who Mark Forster was. You know, on first blush, what I saw was I saw a piece of me. I saw a piece of my friends. I saw a guy that probably would have been a buddy of mine. I, I saw a, a, just a good guy. I saw somebody who was athletic. Uh, he had small town roots. Um, my perception was maybe even a little shy around the girls. Not bad looking, but not full of himself. Not probably a straight arrow. I'm sure he got into trouble, but he was a good guy. And, um, I, you know, now that I've been on your blog long enough, you, you know that, you know, 
I'm a patriotic guy and, and I, I love somebody who, who believes red, white, and blue and, and doesn't have to be the gung ho guy. And that was the other thing I saw. I saw somebody who was paced. I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure how I saw this, but I, this is what I saw. Um, and then at the same time, I saw a guy who got so moved, um, by an event that he felt it was his duty um, to go and not only represent, but also to protect. That was the one thing I took out of that was, here's a guy, a piece of me, a piece of my friends, good guy, and he was, he didn't hesitate to want to put it on the line. He was respectful to his folks he was going to finish college, but then he was going to do this, and he didn't even know what he was going to do. And I, then I was hooked because I I could taste this. You know, I've I've done adventures, I've done hunting things, I've done physical endurance, I've done heart, mental, patriotic things. I've tasted trying to be a good guy. I've gotten into trouble. I've um, been shy around the girls too, if you will, you know, in, in my time. And I just felt like I knew him. And, um, then I really dove in, uh, I read your book, um, and, you know, I consumed it over basically everything, uh, at that point overnight. And, um, at that point, I just, I, I felt like, I wanted to contribute and I wasn't sure how to contribute. I was doing my, what I thought was going to be my last circuit of triathlons. And I thought about you and your folks primarily. And I thought, what can I do that would be honoring? And, um, that's when I had the idea. I went out and I researched Command control. I didn't even know what that branch was until uh, I saw Mark's story. And then when I saw what command control was and, and I, it surprised me, not one iota. That's what he chose and where he went. Um, and I went online and I found, uh, the, and I'll get this wrong. Forgive me, but the, the, the badge of that, that, uh, division or speciality command control. Um, and I, uh, got a little, little American flag, about a three by five cloth American flag. And, um, I believe off the site, the KIA statement on Mark. And then I hand sewed that stuff together. KIA on top of the command control badge and then on top of the American flag. And then I attached it to my racing belt and I dedicated that, uh, series of triathlons there was four of them to mark and in fact you know, it, it went further than that um you know i it's actually kind of funny I, I know i've joked with your dad a little bit about it but you know i i knew what a huge alabama fan mark was and of course i am just as huge a tennessee fan and i thought this is really comical because here i am I'm racing and, and I'm carrying the spirit of a Bama fan and he's going to be sitting on my shoulder and he's going to be saying, come on, Vol, pick it up. And, uh, actually during the races, I had a little bit of chatter with what I believe was Mark Spirit. I, it, it was, it was so good for me to do it. I received so much out of it. Um, and I believe he was watching and, there with me and enjoying the struggle of it. And, um, when I finished, then, um, I took that race belt along with, um, a donation to the foundation and then wrote a hand written letter to your folks because they didn't, they had no idea and tried to explain to them, uh, not only what I did, but why I did it and thought that I would then leave it at that. You know, I didn't want to intrude into the family, um, and sent it. And, um, it was terrific because, um, I got a, a very loving response back. 
Um, I got, uh, your folks sent me, uh, his, the KIA bracelet and a number of things and a framed picture of Mark that I cherish and I have set up in, uh, I have a, a hunting room, uh, that where I keep, you know, basically it's, it's my man cave and that's where I have uh, all my Mark Forrester things. Um, and, um, then that was that until, um, I qualified for the world. When I raced the nationals, I didn't, I, I would, I didn't even think to bring Mark into that. I, I did those. And, but then once I qualified and I, it started to sink in that I was going to go to the world representing the USA. I knew I had no, ch- I, that's when I reached out to your folks and said, gosh, I, I don't know if, I don't know if I could wear, if they'd allow me to wear that old badge or maybe I can put you as a sponsor on my Jersey, but would you be willing to allow me to have the Mark Forrester foundation as my sponsor in the world games to which of course they said, yes. And, you know, I had the, I had the best sponsor on the team USA Jersey of anybody. And, and it was shared. Um, a lot of, a lot of the athletes asked me when I was wearing my kit, what that was about. They saw on my, um, my tri bag that I carried, I attached two of the badges, um, that, that Mark, uh, seemed to, um, uh, prefer and like of course one was his call sign jag 20 jaguar 28 uh, i attached that to my my pack as well as don't tread on me as well as the decal that i had been sporting since the tribe racing in the honor of mark forster um and um then when the race day came and i staged my bike uh, i had a shirt that you sent me um that listed his KIA information and hung that over my bike and took a picture of it. And I probably talked to, I don't know, 30 or 40 different athletes because they wanted to know what that was about. And, and probably the best one of all that was standing in the line to go into the, uh, transition area. A woman from another country, I don't even remember what it was, but she did speak English. She asked me, um, what it meant. Uh, and uh, I, and I told her briefly the story of Mark and while I was doing it and she was visibly moved and it, it was pretty cool. If only people could see what I see behind you right now with his, with the lion and all these animals. And those are some other great stories that I, that I look forward to hearing one day, but um, thank you for your time and for your, your service to so many people and for your patriotism. Well, happy to do it. Thank you, Thad. Thank you to your family and the gift your brother gave us all.